0: Three, four. you've dress.
1: My biggest challenge has been managing expectations, which is kind of funny because my background is PR, and all we do is manage our clients' expectations.
2: They don't teach this in schools. They teach you all sorts of nonsense, but they don't teach you the absolute basics of, of starting a company.
3: We never said no to anyone. We made ourselves on the outside this amazing huge tea, but behind the scenes we were scrambling to try and make it work.
0: When people got off the ship in Australia, they either innovated or they died.
3: Reds rattle,
4: Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk, a podcast that celebrates rebels from every walk of life. Each episode, we talk to the troublemakers whose predilection for bending the rules is driving progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwake. joining me today is my Rebel Tech co-founder, Nicole Lyons.
5: Hi, it's great to be here. Um, And I'm extra excited because this episode is pretty different from the ones we normally do.
4: Yes, it is. Yeah. This episode is going to feature live recordings of speakers from Rebel Talk Live, the founders event we hosted over the summer.
5: Today you're going to hear from not one, but four inspiring people who are driving the progress, the ideas and the optimism that this show that we do aims to champion.
4: The idea for a special episode came off the back of a recent article in The Times by Sathnam Sanghera, the business writer. Actually, the idea for the event came from you, Nick. You just had this idea of trying to get people together over the summer for some drinks and to see if we could help some people. But the theme was off the back of this article about Entrepreneurs and founders, and what Satnam Sangera was basically saying was, he was arguing uh, against people following the dream of running their own businesses and the dangers of what he calls entrepreneurship porn, which was a phrase I think he, he he took from the Harvard Business Review. He was basically saying, look, if you run your own company and you think it's all it's all it's cracked up to be that it's sexy and it's it's exciting and it's adventurous and that you're going to make it, you're wrong. It's basically long hours, low pay, very hard work, a lot of stress, and in the short term, at least you've got a far better chance of happiness if you go and work for an established company.
5: The stories you're about to hear were recorded live at our summer event, and we felt they were way too good not to share with you. Each person showed their determination, willingness to succeed, no matter how many knockbacks they were hit with, and a sense of bravery that they didn't even realise they had.
4: Our first speaker is currently doing everything she can to get her startup Surreal Studios, off the ground. I'll let her tell you about her batshit crazy idea for a business and where she is with it. But what we love about Daisy Pledge is that she's getting her hands dirty working for a whole bunch of other companies while laying the foundations of this dream. She's got no idea what the future holds, but everyone she knows and meets is there to support her because of the trail of charm and inspiration she leaves everywhere she goes. So over to you, Daisy.
1: So I guess I should probably start by telling you my batshit crazy idea. Um, So, which actually isn't that batshit crazy. Um, But I want to use branded multiplayer augmented reality games to connect people at events. So what does that look like? Um, So when you turn up to an event, normally you'd like go to the networking drinks at the end, stand in a corner, you might have a couple of beers, talk to no one, or eventually get some Dutch courage and and talk to like five or ten people, um, all of who are like just completely irrelevant to you. Um, And so that event is just a bit shit. Um, Rather than that, what I want you to do is to go to an event, sign into our app, select the kind of people that you want to meet at that event, then play augmented reality games with everyone from that event. At the end of the event, once it's done, once it's finished, we'll look at who you've selected, we'll look at who you've played with, um, and then we'll send you fun conversation starters. So, for example... I'm going after the media industry. That's my background. I'll get to that. So you selected that you want to meet someone in ad tech um, and then you play it against John in ad tech. We'll send you a notification afterwards saying, hey, you shot John nine times. Maybe you should apologize. And then that starts an email and then, you know, you can just chat and it's very easy and it's very relaxed and it's personable. It's, you know, it's, it's a bit better than a press release. You know, they're dead. So that's the idea I think on my journey to that idea, probably my, my biggest challenge has been managing expectations, um, which is kind of funny because my background is PR, and all we do is manage our clients' expectations the whole time. Um, so when you're doing it to yourself, it's a little bit different. So when I came up with the original idea, um, I basically just wanted everyone to play laser tag everywhere. Um, I was like, yeah, we'll make an augmented reality night laser tag game. Everyone will play it everywhere. It'll be great fun. Um, and then I was introduced to my gaming advisor who told me, uh, that that was technically impossible. So I was like, okay, fine. I just talk to other people. Um, and it actually is technically impossible. Like it can't happen right now. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I've had to change it and adopt it. Um, and he's still my gaming advisor, um, and so we're still working on the logistics of the game and we're going to have to test a lot of stuff and see what we can do with the tech. But it's going to be similar. Um, and then from there, I thought, right, I just need money. Like, that's it. I need money and then I'm going to be there and I'll be done and it'll be great. And then I got onto a pre-accelerator and uh, they were like, yeah, you've not really, like, tested anything. You're not really... Like, it's, it's a, like an interesting idea, but, you know, you, you can't get money. No one's going to give you any money. So that was another sort of like, oh, okay. How do you test without building the AR game when your entire company is an AR game? So I took Nerf guns to networking events, and I'm still doing it. I have an arsenal of about 40 Nerf guns. I'll probably never run out. Yeah, it was fun. It was really great fun. Like, we did quite a few events. We did... Um, I say we, because that's what women do, apparently. It's just me. Uh, <laughs> I need to stop doing that. So I did a few smaller events, and then I did a couple of um, larger, like 400-people events. The first 400-person event was different. They, sort of, they got in touch with me through this thing called Ada's List. It's a global network of women in tech. And they said they had an army-themed party, and they'd like me to have my Nerf guns there. So I thought, like, okay, cool. It's not like my target market, but it's still testing a market. We'll see how people respond to it. So I turned up. Um, they didn't really tell me how to get in. So I sort of stood outside for a while, figuring, like, how do I get into this place? Uh, it was in Vauxhall, so that should have been a hint. Um, and then this other guy was walking around, and he was trying to find his way in as well. And so we ended up walking around together, managed to get in, we walked in and I sort of figured that it wasn't quite what I had expected. Um, there was a, a girl, a woman, walking around with this like, PVC dress, skirt, here, nothing on top, um, apart from a cloak that barely covered her boobs. Anyway, I just went with it. Um, and then a couple of hours later, I realised I actually kind of recognised the guy that had been um, hanging around because I'd actually drawn him nude at a Hindu, a couple of months before. You know, we took it to a different game, um, different event, and then took it to Gorkana Incision, uh, which is a sort of media database um, thing, and we took it to their Christmas party. There was no PVC. There was no bare breasts. It was a much better event. um, And it worked really well, but actually, even that, you know, I've been talking to people recently, it's still not quite proving my point. It's not quite proving that the, the game that I want to make is going to work, because it's not quite the right setting. So that's my job now. I've built the app, I, like I taught myself to code, um, and built a prototype that ish worked. And then I paid a developer to make it actually work. And so now I'm taking the Nerf guns with the apps to actual events in a business setting so that I can prove that it works. And on paper, it does. You know, like, we've always used games to meet people. We've always used games to get to know people and have fun. Why aren't we doing it in a business setting? Because, I don't know, I guess we all think business has to be boring. But actually, it doesn't.
4: Your story is quite a phenomenal one, because you've actually, in following this dream of Nerf guns at events, you've um, lost friends. And you have... Uh, lost your social life to, so, like, you've really, really been hammered up. But the problem that you drill into, you didn't actually articulate here, which is the part that I totally fell for. It's not just that networking events need Nerf guns, networking events are a huge opportunity for business being neglected and abused and used, you know, mishandled. But also, the, and you've actually got a will to help. Help the little guy. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about that. What what really drove you? What's the genuine problem you're trying to solve?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, so my background is PR. Um, So I used to go to networking events all the time. And not just going to them, but also talking to people that go to them. They would count a successful um, networking event as going away with one potential sort of new business prospect. There's 258 people per business event on average. That's like, less than 0.5 percent i mean that's shocking um and talking to people that go to the events on what you know who it is that that find it really difficult to meet people traditionally women and people from minorities so the aim of the the startup isn't just to make it you know fun it is actually meant to enhance like Business, so I want to make it easy for everyone to meet everyone. I want to make it easier for women to get their names out there and people from minorities to meet the right people because they're not as as good at doing it at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, that's like one of my goals. And um, that's when I know it's a success is is you know, if I can get a story from someone that gets in touch and says, you know. I got a promotion because I spoke to this person at this event or I spoke to this many people at this many events and like that got me ahead.
4: Benji's a previous Rebel Talk podcast guest and a hugely inspirational character on the startup scene. Benji began his career as a travel writer for the Guardian and New York Times newspapers but always had the itch to do more with his content. He knew technology was the key to unlocking that particular door, so he taught himself to code, the start of an amazing journey that resulted in his being the CEO and founder of PicFair, an incredible full-service image licensing agency. If you're anything to do with photography, images, publishing, media, or creativity, I advise you to pop along to pickfair.com to see how Benji's platform can help you. Entrepreneur founders have a ton of sleepless nights to get through. Like, There's a vision gap. You know you're right about what you want to do, and yet against you're fighting against the odds not least your own uncertainty the whole time that seems kind of incongruous to be that confident that you know you've got the vision that's going to make it but also you're having to self-doubt the whole time how do you make that work there's two separate
2: things there's the kind of confidence that you have got an idea and you think this should happen and not just that you think I should do it. It's, it's and I should do it now. Um, that could be because you are in a job and you're eating your keyboard because you're so frustrated, or it could be that the the thing you want to build is solving a problem that you feel. And these things combine to make you realise that okay, I, I'm I'm gonna do this. And there is that kind of the, the kind of blind, incredibly optimistic belief that I have to do this. Um, and that's completely fine. But then there's this, I think there's a simultaneous sensation which I think is also completely fine, which is I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. But the fundamental difference, I think, genuinely between people that can drag their company and their idea into reality and and who knows into success is being able to completely and utterly admit what you don't know and then very quickly find someone who does. I learned how to code so I could sort of become my own technical co-founder. But just being one person means that all the time there is stuff you just don't know. Our first seed round, when somebody first asked me what my... I didn't know what the difference between a pre-money valuation and a post-money valuation and what uh, an options pool was and what... We were talking about EIS and SEIS.
4: Yeah, we kind of screwed that up as well.
2: Yeah, I mean... But who the fuck knows this
4: stuff? They don't teach this in schools,
2: which is criminal. They teach you all sorts of nonsense, but they don't teach you the absolute basics of of starting a company. Um, But going back to... You learn
4: geography, though.
2: Yeah, but who gives a shit about an Oxbow Lake? Like, actually, that's rubbish. I love lakes. Um, (laughs) the, The point I'm trying to make is that those two sensations, I think, can be completely simultaneous
4: and valid at the same time. But it comes with a trust issue. Because it, as the founder with the vision, sometimes you just don't want to let go, and you have to. How hard is that? Yeah, it's a
2: massive challenge. And, I, and, and it's something that I've found quite difficult. And I think it's probably in the character of a lot of solo founders that you, the reason you're a solo founder is because you want to go at a pace, and you've got an absolute... Um, you, you've got an aim that you're going for and you don't want anyone else slowing you down and actually having a co-founder can slow you down especially especially at the beginning because you have to run every decision past each other unless you've completely divided labour I find it, it really hard to delegate because I, can oft- I, I know often when I've delegated to some of my team who are amazing they won't do as good a job as I could do if if I had the time to give my, to give all of myself to it but you have to get to a stage where you feel like, okay, but this person is amazing. They all do it 90% as good as I can do it. And then within a few weeks, within a few months, they'll be way better than I am. But I'm saying this as if I find it really easy. I'm crap at it. And it's something that I'm having to learn, especially now as we're sort of growing and building a team. And I'm starting to have like senior team members.
4: One of the things that's really struck me since um, Pickfair launched all those years ago is that the actual offer and the service and the provision has evolved, shifted and changed about 5,500 times, right? So you've got staff and clients and partners and investors uh, and you've got to keep yourself engaged. You've got to keep all these different people engaged and on side and not just thinking that you're literally making it up as you go along. How do you kind of keep refreshing that vision cell when it's, when it's evolving so much? So you're not actually right because at the core, I'm used to it, of what... <laughs> like,
2: so pick, just to give people a very brief instruction to, to, to pick, for. I used to be a journalist... Do you remember when Captain Sully landed his plane on the Hudson, the, the film with Tom Tom Hanks? The picture that you're thinking of right now was taken by um, one of the first responders on the boat over. And that image that he took on his mobile phone ended up on the front page of the New York Times the next day. I was working at The Guardian, and I, and I was permanently trying to get images from Flickr and Instagram to use on the travel web uh, pages of, of The Guardian, and I couldn't. I wanted to build something that allowed any photographer anywhere to take an image and sell it to anyone anywhere. And actually, whilst... Pickfair has changed in terms of exactly who, who we are targeting and what we are offering. That core idea that anyone can take an image and make money from it is at the heart of what we do. So we've, we've started off building uh, an image marketplace. It's like Airbnb for images. You upload your image, you name your price, and we sell those images to publishers. We've got 35,000 photographers around the world now. We've got 6 million images. We've sold images onto the front cover of National Geographic. Um, We're working with the Oxford University Press, Guardian, lots of uh, businesses. Um, However, there are a number of parallel opportunities that kind of presented themselves. So earlier this year... Speaking to some of our photographers, we're trying to work out how can we grow within the photography community more. Asking our photographers, why don't you share your Picfair profiles more? So the Picfair profile is where they, you can see all of their images. And they said, because I can go on holiday to France and come back from France and, and, and upload my images to Picfair and say to my network, um, here's my lovely pictures of France, go to this page... And they'll say, oh, that's really lovely, but how do, I, how do I get that on my wall? And they'll say, oh, no, no, this is licensing. You get a digital download. You have to go down to Snappy Snaps and, and make your own print and put it on your wall. So we've started building a print product to make that bit easier. Um, they've also said that one of the problems is they'll go and look at my beautiful pictures of France, and then there's a search bar up top. They'll put the word France in, and they'll find lots more millions more images of france that are more beautiful and potentially cheaper than theirs they don't like the competition so we're building their own websites that are kind of powered by picfair but they're ostensibly the same thing as their profile but there's no escape to find better images it's just for their local network and then we've also had um situations where brands will come to us and say you've got thirty-five thousand photographers around the world we need 15 photographers in, in 12 different cities next week can you do this for us and we spent ages saying no like idiots and so now we're just like, every time any... Well, for the first two quarters of this year, every time anyone came to us with any photographic project, we just said yes, which means we've kind of accidentally launched an agency. So we are now essentially an, an image agency as well within the company that will deliver on any photographic brief anywhere. And so while Mark just lied to you, saying that we've changed the core idea of what PicFair is since the beginning, it still goes all the way back to the beginning, which is this idea and this principle that anybody should be able to take an image...
4: And make money from it. On the podcast that you and Anthony Eskenazi of Just Park appeared on, you were both quite open about the difficulty and you both started your businesses at a fairly early age. So you went through, you know, 20s and early 30s being, you know, striving for this and you were doing it on your own. What, 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 what have been some of the low points? Like how close have you ever come to it, to quitting?
2: Ooh. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, no, I don't think I've ever come close to quitting voluntarily. (laughs) Uh, But there's a number of times we are just like, this this isn't going to work. Usually it's around investors. I've chosen a weird route uh, where we haven't taken any institutional investment. We've got, but it means I've got about 45 investors, angel investors, ranging from investors who have put in 10K up to a a few really key investors who've put in hundreds of thousands. Um, Some of them are really difficult characters who don't do things when you want them to do them. Uh, and so we've come to, um, literally, if we didn't get a signature within three days, there's no money. We, we, we can't pay our server costs. We can't pay staff, which, this is really interesting. On the on the podcast, I said this almost like guiltily being like, oh, my God, I got to a stage where we were three days away from running out of money. Anthony, who was sitting next to you, was just like, happens all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> And that is, is, I guess, if there's one thing that I would say, uh, it's repeating what I said at the very beginning, is if you can find people like that that can make you realize that you're not just consistently shit at what you're doing, um, it's really helpful. Uh, just, just because you realize that everybody, everybody in startup land um, is kind of winging it a
4: little bit.
5: Our so. next speaker isn't a founder, but she definitely thinks like an entrepreneur. Having set up the marketing and comms function at global ad tech company Captify three years ago, Laura Pleasance believes that being closer to the business and its goals means marketing can actually enable growth. From her experience, it really works that way elsewhere. In her words, it's certainly not perfect, but it's working. Here's how.
3: I'm not actually a founder. I think um, I've got a very different story, maybe to, like from a founder perspective. I found Captify three years ago. Um, I wouldn't say that I kind of... Maybe sought out to find that whole entrepreneurial kind of experience. Um, I've been in a range of companies. I also spent a little bit of time working for Lord Sugar, so I saw like a completely different entrepreneurial experience there as well. Um, three years on, uh, the company that I joined is really not the company that um, we have today. We are a global ad tech company. We specialise in search intelligence. We've got some of the world's biggest brands that are our, our clients all over the world, um, and I've experience that path and that journey with Domlad and the co-founders. I think there's a I guess many of you will hire marketers in your teams and many of you will hire people like me to kind of blow your business up and to to present it to the world in a way that you want it to be seen. I think for us we've got to really understand like what the founder's ambition and vision is and really match that and join them on that journey. Um, I didn't think that I would actually start thinking like an entrepreneur so I guess that's my big message to you guys today. I I started off as a marketer but Actually, the bit that makes me tick is is actually understanding and learning how to grow a business. I think if marketers can get closer to that and get closer to the vision and the strategy, then you'll make the same mistakes and the same lessons and learnings that the founders will make on a macro level. My little marketing world, which is actually much bigger than it was three years ago, so I started off on my own, a single marketing manager. I've now got a team in London and. Um, New York, soon to be Paris as well. And our little macro version, our little mini business that we have within Captify really does reflect what the founders are, are feeling and experiencing. In the early days, like trying to take a company that I really bought into their vision. So like as an employee, I looked at them and thought, wow, like I've really got an opportunity to be a part of like something amazing. And so I thought, actually, I have a duty of service to them to actually help them grow that business from a marketing point of view. In the early days, I joined as a single marketer And I literally felt every day was just like this massive mountain to climb. The company had grown four years on its own without marketing. So the argument was for the investors, do you even need it? It it, it already had scaled and grown. It had started to move into Paris. We moved into New York. We had diversified the product. What was the argument for marketing at that stage? Um, So I, I had a massive backlog, a massive list of things to do, and also a big, like, future path that lay ahead. And that challenge in the early days, we literally said yes to everything. Every opportunity that comes our way, like, say yes to it all. Every PR opportunity, like, we squeezed it in. We never said no to anyone. We made ourselves that available company that had on the on the outside this amazing huge team that could react to all those big um, opportunities that came our way but behind the scenes we were scrambling together to try and make it work. We said yes to every client opportunity, every partnership opportunity and we invested early in some pretty big things that I feel as a marketer can help grow your company. So we invested really early in design as as a small kind of 50 person team three years ago that is now 200 people we invested really early and quite a lot of money into a design agency that helped from a visual perspective blow up the company so we had a creative agency a creative director this amazing mind that talks about like the hierarchy of a brand and that's really not something that happens a lot within b2b or even within ad tech or even within any technology company they don't naturally invest into design in the same way as a b2b brand would We also invested quite heavily in PR. Um, It's something that we really believe in at Captify. We said yes to all those things. We had this to great co founders, great stories, great backstories. And we told it a lot. We took every opportunity that came in inbound and focused a lot in the early days around those two elements. I think for founders to try and help your marketers grow your business with you and for you, you've got to be really transparent and really open yourself up to telling them what your vision and what your, what your drive is like what is your end goal what are you trying to achieve in a three month six months nine month period I think naturally a lot of marketers be sat outside of that conversation so transparency is a huge huge learning and I think for us we've got to adapt our biggest issue and biggest challenge right now is how do we scale it we've got we have a very successful first two to three years of the marketing now the challenge is as the company grows across even more countries that than I can personally keep up with in multiple languages how do we take all of our marketing successes and blow those up across the world how do we hire the right people to do it how do we find the right resources how do we channel ourselves in the right way it's a constant evolution so as founders you've got to really think about your message think about how you've structured it how long have you got left in that messaging cycle Um, and I think you've got to adapt that and let your marketers move that with you and share those experiences with them so that they can grow that on your behalf.
4: Do you think startup marketing is the best training for marketers out there now?
3: I think it's definitely the one that you get your hands dirtiest in the most. In I think, like, it doesn't really stop at marketing. I I think in the early days, I did a lot of things. I did a little bit of HR, a little bit of, not the technical HR, but culture driving. I owned a lot of different things. It just had to be done. And I think that's kind of what... Anyone that joins a startup or a scale-up has to do. You, You have to get your hands dirty. You have to be willing to go, like, above and beyond. We really don't have a single person in Captify that doesn't do that. I hadn't really been exposed to the true connection between marketing and growing a business. I think we didn't... I didn't get the numbers. I didn't get, like... the the danger zones I didn't get like the reason why you maybe don't have to you don't have the budget this month or you should stop spending it I think we're in a position where we can swing the pendulum of like profitability if I spend too much in a quarter I could be that department that maybe swings it in the wrong way so I think without that information I can't make the right decisions or I probably in previous roles got really frustrated because I didn't have the transparency from the founders as to what they were actually trying to do (laughs) So we met Anthony Rose, the founder and CEO of Seed
5: Legals platform, where Mark and I were setting up Rebel Tech and going through our own round of fundraising. His team was so supportive the whole way through, no matter what we needed to ask, and no matter how annoying we were. Seed Legals is Anthony's fifth or sixth startup, so the advice he has for entrepreneurs and founders is well worth listening to.
0: He was originally from South Africa and then from Australia, and I think in both cases being new world countries um it the, the psyche is if something doesn't exist you build it yourself you know when people got off the ship in australia they either innovated or they died there was no waiting and it took three months for the ship to come from england so if you didn't grow your own whatever you were dead so there's a general feeling that if something doesn't exist you, that's an opportunity everything is an opportunity so um I think in the U.K. it's a little different. Maybe it's been said that uh, in the U.S. people work for share options, stock options, as they call it, whereas the U.K. is a bit more of a feudal system. The, uh, the founders want to make just enough money to buy a castle and the employees want to make just enough money to have a good subsistence living. And so one, of my one BBC story is, you know, BBC had this DMI project, which was a spectacular failure, and... Uh, I think one of the key reasons is uh, that the people running the project went to the BBC and said, can you tell me your requirements? We're building this new digital production studio. And they asked lots and lots of people for requirements. And, of course, you had to give a requirement. If you didn't give a requirement, you could never go back late and go, um, can it do X? And they go, you should have told me a few months ago. So they gathered like a 1,000 requirements. And at the end of it, they could just never build anything because it had this huge list of requirements. And when I was um, heading up BBC iPlayer at the time, I needed a simple video encoding system for my team. And uh, so people went, oh, no, don't build anything. This DMI thing's going to deliver. And I thought, sniff the air, kick the tires, mixed metaphors there, and decided this thing wasn't going to ship anytime soon. So I needed to build something. But to do it, I needed to stay well below the radar. And so I decided I'm going to have only one stakeholder. That's me. I'm absolutely not asking anyone else. And then I got three young team members to go build it, a very small budget. Hey, guys, you need to build this. And only ask me, and I'll ask a few people. And then what you do is you build the minimum, and you find people who match the thing you're going to give them. So instead of asking lots of people what you want, I went, I think people are going to want X. We're going to build X, and then I'm going to go find people and tell them you can have X for free If you just use X, if you wanted Y or Z, you can't have it. But if you want X, it's yours for free, no strings attached. And what happened is people changed their requirements. And I've I've learned this now with seed legals. Instead of, if you go to a law firm, they'll tell you 120 things you can do. I say, here's one thing you should do. And if you design what you're doing around it, everything will be dramatically faster. So with that in mind, here are some things that maybe the things you shouldn't do. So number one is pick the right co-founder. You know, maybe it's like having kids sometime later. You know, you've met in the pub, cut to a year later, you've got some kids and you go, I'm a bit bored with these kids, but you can't give them back. So when you're finding the right co-founder, you know you have to be with them a while. And that's the difference between a founder and an employee. An employee, you can get bored, go off to Facebook or Google and get another job. But with a founder, you've got these wonderful people. You've brought from the other things they were doing. You've got them together to work on your mission. And you, you, know, you can't just walk away from it. Next thing, never listen to people and never do what people tell you to. So, of course, as a founder, you are a founder because you never want to listen to people anyway. But the problem is you have all these people telling you ideas And, you know, you sometimes have paid advisors and you have investors and you have co-founders and, you know, others. And they go, you know, sales would increase if you did X. And I think you should add this button to the UI. And have you tried the new hamburger menu? And the problem is, if you listen to everyone, you go nowhere. And maybe that's why Moses was in the desert for 40 years. Because it was like every day went, I'm going to optimize by going 100 meters west. And the next day went, wait, my new optimization strategies are going to go north a little bit. Um, so I think being the founder is about picking some sane, rational route between blind optimism, I'm just going to keep going that way till we find gold or die, or the micro-optimization. I'm going to move this a bit higher, we're going to change this, because then you go in this random walk and you never go anywhere. So next thing is ideas are cheap and implementation is expensive. You've decided it's a great idea, you've got the team together, and... but. Ideas are arbitrary. How much validation did you do? And normally what you do is you end up raising money, building it, shipping it, and only then discover that actually it wasn't such a good idea. Nobody really wanted this. And the problem is most people's websites, and when I do mentoring sessions, I usually see people's websites all about how clever they are, the cool thing they're doing. But nobody cares. They only want to see what's in it for them. So it's all about... Put aside the ego and the how clever the team is in doing stuff and just focus on what's the least amount of work you have to do to give people what they want. So once upon a time, I think people you know, were brought up to think, my father worked in a coal mine, I'm going to work in a coal mine. And then, thanks to the disintegration of, hopefully, the class system, people had you know, self-determination, you could do whatever you want. And I think some surveys suggested, like a decade ago, of UK school kids thought of being an entrepreneur. Now, the latest survey, it's like 27%. But I think one of the problems is not everyone necessarily is cut out to be an entrepreneur. And so seeing lots of startups that see legals, I think often there's a blind optimism that I will have this idea and then I will get funding. And, you know, as being been said... You quickly discover after you've got your friends and family to invest that once you hit pro-investors, they want a better likelihood of a return on investment. So I think just telling people I've got an amazing idea is not sufficient to get money.
4: That's it for this very special episode of Rebel Talk. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thanks also to our brilliant production team at Hard 6 Audio, to Spirit Land in King's Cross and to our producer Meg Wright.
4: If you'd like to know more about any of today's guests, we made a book... Yes, we made a book. Go to slash rebel talk.
5: Until next time,
4: Up the Rebels. Trend, I love you so. I
5: realized well, that I did, was good. That yeah, was good. I, I didn't do want know. to do it together, it would just make me like, cringe. Okay. <laughs>